When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to First Act, a podcast from Koshy's Business Builders. I'm Seth Busby. And I'm Adam Bubb. And we're so glad that you could join us. Each week we take a deep dive into the origin stories of Australia's most innovative and interesting business founders. We really hope that you feel as inspired as we do after these chats. Seth, just sitting here, I feel inspired. We've recorded more than 25 episodes this year so far, and we've had such a unique insight into the minds of successful people and people who haven't been afraid to talk about the hard yards behind building a brand. Today's guest is one of the most fearless and exciting entrepreneurs I've met in a long time. So accomplished that she's been on Richard Branson's Necker Island twice. Oh, how do I get that invite? (laughs) Yes, that's right. Leela Cosgrove is not your average entrepreneur. Growing up in Housing Commission in Brisbane, surrounded by a climate of violence and drugs, Leela had the odds against her. Yet with considerable hustle, she started her first venture nearly 20 years ago and now runs a multi-million dollar business growth consulting firm called Strategic Anarchy. She runs a media company called The 8% and a sales tech company called Iron Cage. And she owns Australia's largest witchcraft supply store, High Priestess. She's passionate about helping more women succeed in business and shatter any barriers that may be in their way. And Lilo is bringing this mission to life as the Australian chapter leader of the Dell Women's Entrepreneur network, Dwen, and with the Women's Leadership Festival in Melbourne this October. Welcome, Leela. Thanks, guys. Quite the intro. I was like, wow. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Are you impressed with yourself? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because it's like that, right? Like you don't really think about yourself and then someone says stuff and you're like, oh, I do a lot of things. You do the stuff, you know, you give yourself some credit, Leela. We're not talking about some Leela over there. (laughs) Not a lot of Leelas. It's a fairly singular name. Well, Leela, we are so excited to have you on the show today. We always start with our first act, Icebreaker. So your icebreaker for today is, who is the most inspiring woman you've ever met? Oh, God, there's some good ones there. I've got to say probably Amal Clooney. The first time I was invited to NECA, Amal and George were there for the four days. And she is just such an incredible person across every level, like this doing all of this insane human rights activism. Um, you know, she's, she's representing uh, victims throughout The Hague and just just doing the most amazing work, particularly for women and women's rights. And on top of that, like a genuinely nice person, like a really sweet, kind, nice person. So, yeah, I'd, I'd say she's definitely up there. I'm just imagining what those conversations uh, around the dinner table would have been like because Amala's just done so many amazing things on the world stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's she's just a really incredible person on every level, but but was super surprised and blown away by how really like genuinely lovely she was. On top of that, just like a really kind woman who's also 
really honestly about supporting other women because, you know, sometimes women say they're about supporting other women and then it's like, yeah, until it behooves you not to. But she's one of those women who really has other women's backs and it was just like a real pleasure to get the opportunity to get to know her. Yeah, it's all about the actions and, and not just the words. And that's exactly that's really, that kind of leads us neatly into what you're doing with the Women's Leadership Festival. Uh, can you, Before we get into your backstory, can you just give us a quick spiel about what that is and, and, and who it's for? Absolutely. So I kind of knew through 2020, I'm in Victoria, regional Victoria, not quite Melbourne, so not quite the same, but close. Um, Through 2020 and 2021, uh, I really kind of knew I wanted to put on, once we were able to, a big event again. And I knew very much that for me, it was something I wanted to focus specifically around the challenges that women were facing from a leadership position, particularly because I kept going to these events pre-COVID where the conversations on stage would be things about how women just need to have more confidence or women need to learn how to draw boundaries. And I looked at that and I was like, I'm not saying women never have confidence issues, but the idea that you're, you know, C-suite in corporate or running a business and you lack confidence is this like, bizarre, almost kind of trying to turn the issues back onto women way of thinking about things, right? Like, I don't think the issues that women are having in society is because they lack confidence or because they can't set boundaries. I think it's one thing to set boundaries. It's another thing if nobody wants to pay any attention to them. Um, how do you, how do you further? (laughs) Like I, I, I know so many incredible confident women, but they don't get the same kind of airplay that guys get. And the idea that that's just a lack of, a lack of personal, you know, chutzpah or whatever is, is, is quite crazy to me. But so I wanted to do something different. I wanted to have real conversations curated by women, had by women. I wanted to bring the audience into the conversation too, because I know from having run a lot of events over the years, that there's always a wealth of conversation and wisdom within the audience, not just on stage. Uh, And so that's kind of how the Women's Leadership Conference was born, is that over two days on the 25th and 26th of October uh, in Melbourne, we'll be having these conversations each day. We have three panels, but then in the afternoon, we have space where everybody can come together and sit and discuss the issues that, you know, the panellists and the attendees and really look at how do we work together to create movement on climate change? How do we create movement on, uh, you know, the the issues that women are facing with microaggressions in the workplace? How do we work together to support one another? Because to me, women's genius is in community. That's where women shine. It's where women excel is in creating communities and supporting one another in that way. So let's talk a little bit about your own journey to becoming a business leader. It's been not the most conventional one. I mean, we mentioned a little bit about your background in the intro. Can you paint a picture for us of what your life was like while you were growing up? Yeah, so um, I grew up in a, a suburb called Zilmere in Brisbane, which was a housing commission estate. And, you know, it was it was pretty rough. I mean, we moved there from Sydney in 88. And at the time, the primary school I was going to, like half the kids didn't wear shoes to school. Like it was really like Wild West stuff out there. And, it, you know, it was it was a pretty rough area. I mean, our graduation party 
in year seven, there was drugs, there was alcohol, there was 22-year-old guys wandering around, there was people having sex in bedrooms. I was just like I was calling my parents up going, I'm really not prepared for this. Can you come get me? Like it was, <laughs> it was intense. This was for a bunch of 12-year-olds. So, you know, it was like it, it was an intense area, a lot of drugs, a lot of violence, and a, a real kind of thought that, and a rhetoric that anybody who grew up in that area was basically doomed to, you know, repeat that cycle, repeat that poverty cycle. So how do you think you managed to break that cycle? Where do you think you got that um, entrepreneurial spark from? Oh, look, it, 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 10 out of 10, it's my parents, right? Um, it, it's absolutely, I always say, when it, when it comes to growing up, when it comes to children, love is good. It's obviously important. But the number one most important thing is that my parents kept me safe. Uh, and they really focused on my safety and making sure that, you know, in situations like that, they would come pick me up. And my mother also, when we when I was growing up, my mother and my grandmother, while we were living in Sydney before we left, when I was very young, ran a bookstore, just a little secondhand bookstore, never made any money. But in those very formative years, my role models, my two strongest female role models in my life ran a business. And so it never occurred to me that I wouldn't. I always knew that I would. And I was, you know, 16 years old and the other kids in my class were working at McDonald's and I was dressing up as a fairy for kids' parties and running around at kids' mm-hmm. parties as a fairy and getting paid for that. I was always like from a, from a very young age, from the time I was probably eight years old, nine years old, I always had some kind of a hustle going on. I was always selling something, making something, doing something like like, you know, I knew from a very young age that business was something that I wanted to do. What was the first thing that you made and sold? Oh, you know what? The very first thing, I probably would have been six years old, I decided to do a colouring in competition for school. So I charged people like 50 cents to enter. And I got everybody in my class to enter and I got my, my dad's a printer. So I got him to print out some, some kind of, you know, colouring in sheets and I got everybody to enter and then I gave them some kind of terrible like $1 prize. So I made some money off that. I made like 20 bucks, which, you know, in, in <laughs> 1986 was not bad for a six-year-old. Like it was good. That's not bad at all either. <laughs> so how do you go from colouring in to, you know, becoming a fairy to launching your first business, Leela Cosgrove Consulting? Yeah. So I... I It was an interesting set of circumstances where I was so bad at corporate life that I was relegated to temp jobs because basically no one would give me a reference because I just had such an attitude problem about how I knew how to do everything. You you, you really want your 18-year-old receptionist to know everything about everything. That's always a very valuable trait to have in a corporate setting. And so, (laughs) like, I really, I struggled in corporate because I felt like I was smart and I felt like I was good at my job. And I was, I was always like very on top of my stuff. Uh, and it was not always appreciated. So I ended up in these temp jobs and sometime around, it would have been 2003, 2004. I was like trying to figure out, okay, how do I make money? And I'm online Googling, like how to make money online. And I came across a website called guru.com, which was a freelancing website back when like nobody, anything about making money on the internet must've been a scam back then. It was like, no online business. You maybe sold some stuff on eBay, but that was it. Um, and I found guru.com and put a profile up on there. Uh, but most of the people who were on there were American. And if you weren't from America, then obviously you were some kind of scammer. 
Um, but then one day I was, I was away with my mum. We were house-sitting for a friend of hers in Bangalore and this email came through from a guy who was a Canadian based in Sydney and he was the managing director for J. Abraham Asia Pacific. J. Abraham's a, a major consultant. Um, if you don't know him, you might know Tony Robbins and Jay's the reason that you know Tony Robbins. So Jay was the one who kind of did all the marketing and created the infomercials and stuff for Tony Robbins. Um, so I put in an application with this guy. He was looking for a virtual assistant. I was like, I can do that. I do administration. And he came back and nailed me. <laughs> it was so good. He was like, he was like, I oh, don't know. I'm reading through your, like reading in between the lines of your resume. I suspect you're not all that good at admin. I'm like, that's so true. He's like, but you seem to have a skill set around writing. Would you be interested in doing some writing? So um, so I took on with him sort of an apprenticeship over the next couple of years. Uh, I mean, I, I was getting paid nothing, like $9 an hour. And everybody around me was like, you're crazy. You're getting ripped off. And I'm like, yeah, but am I? Because I'm writing these articles. I'm getting sent this content from Jay Abraham, whose like content is worth tens of thousands of dollars. I'm getting sent to his seminars to like create stuff based off the back of it. Like the education that I'm receiving for that tiny amount of pay is worth so much more than they're paying me. Um, and I was still working my temp jobs at the time. So I'd be like all day at work, come home, have dinner, seven o'clock back on the computer until probably midnight writing stuff for like no money and it was hard work um and the you know the the guy I was working with my mentor then was very exacting he was he was really like that's wrong do this again like he was really on top of me but also that sort of three years I spent working with him three four years I spent working with him was such a crucible I learned so much of what is now the foundations of kind of business and made a lot of like really good connections and network that were crucial in me being able to grow my business. So coming from a background where money was scarce, what did making your own money mean to you? Yeah, you know, it's funny because a lot of people I deal with now have a lot of like, oh, I don't know, don't charge for things or don't do stuff. Like this was never an issue for me. I just always wanted to make all of the money. Um, and, you know, when you grow up in a household. <laughs> all the money. <laughs> all the, Literally all of it. I, I want every single piece of it. Give it to me. Um, I was, I was, because I had, I had big stuff behind me, right? Like I wanted to support my parents, which I'm now able to do. I wanted to make sure that my family was set up, which they are. So it wasn't just about me. It was about how do I bring everybody with me? And so like having that, having that money was a, a really big deal. And I worked really hard for it because I sort of, I didn't have that oh, too much. I didn't have the luxury of that middle-class guilt around money. Because when you grow up in a household where you come home and there's no food in the fridge or the phone might be turned off, then you, you just don't have the luxury of guilt around money. So I like, I worked really hard. I didn't freak out about money until after we started making like over a million dollars a year. Then I started to have some panic attacks where I'm like, this is a lot of money. Why is anybody letting me manage this? But before that, it was like, <laughs> it was like, not nah, just keep, keep giving me the money. This is good. I like it. <laughs> so in keeping with that, in 2009, you started Strategic Anarchy, an internationally renowned sales consulting and training business. So what was the aha moment that got you there? What, what, what made you want to share those sales tips and, and trends and tricks to help other people make money? 
when you want all the money. <laughs> <laughs> all the money. It was it was actually really organic. So, I mean, when I was freelance writing, um, people would come to me and they'd be like, okay, but like, how do you put together a unique value proposition? And so I started kind of teaching that. And then they'd be like, all right, but what do I do with that with my marketing? And then I started teaching that. And then it's like, okay, but now I've got all of these products. How do I actually sell them? And so we started teaching that. And we kind of really let the market guide us. And something I say to people a lot if they're sort of starting out and they're early in business is I'm always like, start with service. People want to jump into being a consultant when they don't have experience or they have corporate experience, which is fine, but doesn't really translate to small business. Like starting with service, starting with some kind of done for you, you know, freelance writing. I was doing product creation for a long time for people. That gives you a foundation of really understanding what you're doing, but it also helps you organically understand over time what the pieces of the puzzle are that people really need. And that's always been how we've created our products and how we've kind of moved and evolved our business is we look at like, what do the people in our community need next? What is what is there not enough of happening in the marketplace? Where is like, you know, like I said, with Women's Leadership Conference, I look at the conversations, I'm such a mismatcher, right? I see the conversations everybody else is having and I'm like, well, I disagree with that. I'm going to do something different. And very much we look for the places. And, and, and Richard Branson said it to me as well. He's like, look, we, we never go in looking to make the best product. We never go in looking to make a lot of money. He's like, we go in to look and look at where a market is not being served. And that's very much the organic approach we've taken over the years. That is such an interesting point you make about helping people fill a market gap. Uh, one of those things, you know, you do that in, in your work. You, you're passionate about helping people grow their businesses and sell more. But on your website, you have a quote that says, entrepreneurs, not governments, change the world. Yes. How do you link those goals of of profit and purpose? I just don't think there is any separation between the two. Yeah, like the, the best advice I have for helping the poor is don't be one of them, having been poor, right? It, it doesn't... I, I, again, I, I think because I don't, I've never had the luxury of middle-class guilt. It's for me, it's like, it's very obvious. Like if I wanted to do things in my life, when you're poor, when you can't keep the lights on, when you're worried about how you're going to keep a roof over your head, food on the table, you can't think about purpose. You just don't have the capacity to think about those bigger issues because all of your energy and focus is taken on just keeping your head above water. To be able to like truly support other people, to be able to truly create um, impact and change, you need to be in a position where you're able to do that regardless of money, right? I, I kind of, I refer to it as a Robin Hood, don't steal from people. But if you sell to the rich, then you're able to give to the poor. I actually do a lot of that. I was working yesterday. I'm working with a, um, a company in uh, Indonesia who are an organic skincare brand. And I'm able to do, you know, what I would charge regular clients 15 grand a month for with our branding agency. Um, I'm able to do that for them for free because I have the money from other businesses. I have staff. I have capacity to be able to support a business that's supporting women, um, supporting local businesses in Indonesia, helping save the rainforest in Sumatra. Like, I'm able to do that because I have the capacity to do it because I've gone and made the money. So like, I, I see absolutely no separation between cash and purpose. In fact, I think you can't fully achieve your purpose if you're not abundant in every way. Oh, bring on the abundance then, I say. <laughs> now, we'll be back with more from Leela Cosgrove after this short break. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. 
and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. We are back with Leela Cosgrove. Now, we talked about profit and purpose. Your philanthropic efforts landed you not one, but two invites to Richard Branson's Necker Island. How? (laughs) Look, I was really really lucky to have uh, a mentor uh, in 20, God, it would have been 2015, who had um, been herself, who got an invite, wasn't able to go and recommended uh, recommended me. So it does, it's one of those things you kind of need to know someone who knows someone. Uh, and then, you know, there's a, there's a donation to be made and also philanthropic work to be done. They interview everybody to make sure, I guess, that you're not having any crazy kind of psychos, which um, is probably a good move. <laughs> they do a very good job of that. They do curate a really amazing group of people. But yeah, that's, that's kind of it. You've got to be like, not a crazy person be doing some good sort of philanthropic work uh, and, um, you know, be the the right kind of mix for the kind of people they're looking for. So what do you think you learnt while you were there? What was the most valuable lesson in your time on NECA? Gosh, there's always so many. You know, the first time I went um, in 2016, the big takeaway was that I have a very interesting set of life experiences that not everybody has, right? So, you know, we're on NECA with people who are generationally wealthy and the the Princess Diana's goddaughter, um, you know, the the guy whose family runs the oldest retail clothing store in Europe, like like seriously generationally wealthy people. And Leila from Zilmi. Um, <laughs> um, so, we're, so we're like sitting there and there was a, there was a conversation particularly around, uh, there was one of the speakers was a guy who'd spent 30 years on death row for a crime he didn't commit, had later been exonerated, um, six months out of prison. And he's on Necker Island sharing his story about, you know, what it is to be black in the South of America. And, you know, and people are talking about we're going to do a book and we're going to do a movie and we're going to do this thing and that thing. I kind of like quietly put up my hand and I'm like, hey, like for all he's been exonerated, he doesn't have 30 years of work history. Can we maybe get him a job? <laughs> I honestly think it came from a good place, right? Like I don't, I don't think they're looking to make money. They're trying to solve the problem, right? They're like, how do we use this to get rid of the death penalty? How do we use this to make sure that the death penalty is no longer an issue in the US? Like, how do we create, like, they, they really come from the best possible place. They're really trying to create something amazing, but they just, if you're generationally wealthy like that, you've never thought about keeping a roof over your head. It's just <laughs> you not, haven't had not, racial profiling. <laughs> right? it's just, just, the, just the very idea of, like, needing a job is just not within their realm of experience. And so for me, I was like, I was like, oh, like I have, it, not a lot of people on NECA grew up in housing commission. Not a lot of people who grow up in housing commission end up on NECA. And that gives me an interesting ability 
and in that ability a responsibility to walk between two worlds, yeah, to be able to, to navigate both and to, um, to translate between the two. And so, you know, I really took that seriously from sort of 2016 after that experience um, and, and took that a lot to my philanthropic work going forward is like how do, I, how do I translate between these two worlds so that people really understand the experience of both? Because I think, you know, for a lot of middle-class people, there's a, there's a story that, you know, if you're uh, on the dole, oh, you bloody dole bludger, there's the, you know, if you're in housing commission, it's because you're a druggo. And what I know from growing up in housing commission is that the cycle of poverty isn't just financial, it's trauma-induced. Yeah, it, it's a cycle mm-hmm. of trauma. Um, and it's not so easy when you understand the kids I grew up around, you understand their stories, you understand the parents who didn't keep them safe and quite the opposite. Like you don't end up hooked on drugs and living in housing commission for no reason. There's always some kind of history of trauma there, often that started very, very young. Um, and so, you know, that gives me an insight that, like, maybe not a lot of people have, that I'm able to sort of translate between those worlds and change the way that people think, um, but also bring some sort of humanity to some of the philanthropic works I do where people are really excited to do stuff, but, like, let's make sure that the stuff that we're doing is actually practical and helpful and hitting the real problems. So, so what was the reaction when you were like, uh, how about we get him a job? <laughs> oh, bless them. They were all like, oh, my God, you're right. <laughs> bless them. They, were all, they were all just like, oh, my God, you're so right. I'm like, yeah, may, maybe some therapy as well because that's a lot. Um, and, and bless them. They were all like, yes, and they were straight on it because, again, like, best of intentions, just not really within their realm of experience. Now, speaking of things that are probably outside a lot of people's realm of experience, we need to talk about High Priestess. (laughs) Now, how did you get into witchcraft? So I come from three generations of psychics. So my (laughs) grandmother for my 14th birthday gave me a Ouija board, uh, and a pack of Alastair Crowley tarot cards, which, like, uh, Alastair Crowley, mm. not appropriate for a 14-year-old at all. But that was <laughs> not appropriate. And then my mum is more of a, my mum and her best friend were, like, more sort of 70s, new age hippies. They, um, my mum's best friend moved to Bangalore in the <laughs> 80s. And, and Stevie they were, Nicks, white witch kind uh, of style. Like, oh, <laughs> yeah, exactly, like full 70s. Like, they, they were reading you know, auras at the Bangalore markets in the 90s. Like, so I come from a line of psychics. Um, and the uh, uh, High Priestess actually came up as it was a, a ex-client's business um, and she had uh, some issues, uh, wasn't able to keep it going last year and was just like, I'm going to close it down. And I was like, well, I don't know, man, I'd buy it off you. Like, why not? I don't have enough. To, I'm only running three other businesses and, you know, tapped a leader of Dwen. Like, I've got plenty of free time. Let's add an e-com <laughs> business to everything we're doing. So, so we bought So we bought that. I mean, it was, a, it was a business that was doing very well previously, but it had some challenges, particularly through, through COVID and, you know, based in Melbourne and um, supply chain and stuff like that just got really, really difficult uh, and, and the business had dropped a bit. So, you know, we spent a good year kind of building it back up and getting it established and regaining customer trust um, and, and just really rebuilding the business from the inside out. So, yeah. Because you've just got so much going on with, with your various businesses, with Strategic Anarchy, you've also got Iron Cage. Uh, where's, where's High Priestess now in, in, the, in the mix? 
Too many, too many businesses. Take it back. High Priestess is our fun business and it's the one I have a really small team as well. Um, my team's tiny but hyper effective. Um, it's actually, it's insane how much we get done for such a very small team. But like High Priestess is doing great. Uh, we're, we're really bouncing along. My plan with it always had been to kind of transition from e-com specific into like my background is information products, events. I know how much money can be made in that space. Um, and this is always what I'd said to my client who owned it originally. I'm like, you know, the problem with product-based businesses is the margins are so slim. Like they're so, so tight. Whereas consulting events, you can be looking at 20, 30, 40% profitability. Um, and you just, you just cannot get that on. You're lucky to get 10% on a product business. Um, so we've started moving it in that direction. I, my focus is really around uh, bringing entrepreneurial women into it because I think that what I've done with my own clients over the last few years, there's this thing that happens. I call it the million dollar meltdown. When your business reaches that first like million dollars, I mean proper million dollars, like a million dollars in cash through your bank account in 12 months. Yeah. Like not over 10 years or whatever fancy numbers people are using, but like that when you hit that million dollars in revenue for the first time, there's this meltdown that happens where people have worked so hard to get there. And then they're like, oh, wait, I made a million dollars and everything else in my life didn't just magically get better. I really thought that if I made a million dollars, like I'd be happy and everybody would love me and everything would be okay. And then they go into like full scale meltdown. Um, And typically what they do at that point is like, okay, let's make $2 million, $5 million. And then they hit those goals and it just keeps getting progressively worse. Um, And I love working with those clients because that's where I was myself when I hit that, that first million dollars. And then our second million dollars, it was Actually, <laughs> coming from the background I'd come from, you know, the last the last job I'd had, the most money I ever made was like $60,000 a year. And all of a sudden I'm managing $2 million a year. And I used to say to my partner, I'm like, who's giving me $2 million a year to manage? This is ridiculous. I don't know what to do with $2 million. What do you do with $2 million? Um, and so that, that meltdown kind of continued until I got back in touch with my spirituality. So, um, you know, I kind of walked away for a while while I was getting the business sorted and really sorting out my material life because I knew that was important to me. Uh, and when I came back to sort of my spiritual practice, it really helped me to navigate those ups and downs and those sort of, uh, you know, what's going on in my head. I don't really understand all of the things that are happening. Um, that and therapy. I don't underrate therapy, therapy and spiritual development, do all the things. Um, but I like, that's really where high priestess is kind of going is like, how do we help these entrepreneurial women who get, you know, badass achievers and then they hit the goal and we call it the tyranny of the achieved goal. Right. And then it's like, Oh, that, but that was supposed to make me happy and it didn't. And now what do I do? So behind the scenes, you've got a really super supportive partner as well. You just, you just mentioned your partner, how important is it for men to come along on this journey of, of helping support women in business too? Look, you know, regardless of whether it's a man or woman in business, right, like the most crucial thing as to how successful you will be is the supportiveness of the people around you. Yeah, so, you know, whether that's a partner or family or, or whatever. Um, I, I have seen you know, a lot of women over the years, I've been in, in the consulting space now for, you know, 13 years. Um, and I've watched the, you know, there's, there's two very distinct groups, right? You've got the women who make a shit ton of money 
and their partners are just insanely supportive and they're just sitting there being like, you go, you do what you need to do. If I need to take time off from work and take care of the kids, I can do that. You just need to do what you need to do because I think you're magnificent and the world needs to see it. Um, and then unfortunately you get the other side, which is the guys who are quite threatened when when women make money. Uh, and there's a study that actually came out last year that said that when a woman out earns a man, the likelihood of domestic violence goes up by 28%. Um, which is a like shocking and really, really difficult statistic, but also very much backs up my experience of the world. You know, and I see that too. I see a lot of women who either end up out of their relationships or who, you know, if they, you know, they do love their partner and they've got kids who then readjust their business. And I've seen people drop businesses from millions of dollars down to a couple of hundred thousand simply because their partner cannot cope with them being successful um, and kind of brings the family in to harangue them uh, until such time as it's just easier for them to be like, you know what, I'm just going to go back to making a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year and I'll bounce along and it'll be fine. You mentioned previously that um, you're the Australian chapter lead of DWEN, the Dell Women's Entrepreneur Network. I'm a really big believer in mentorship. It sounds like mentorship played a big role in your journey as well as an entrepreneur. So how did it come about that you um, you joined when and how did you become the Australian chapter lead? It was totally random set of events, as is everything in my life. So in 2019, uh, I went to the Dwen conference in Singapore. Um, and it was, it just happened to be, I was, I was going over to the UK and on the way back, I was like, I was like, oh, there's this Dwen event in Singapore. Um, and I'd heard of the, I'd heard of the organization about a year previously. I was speaking at the B2B Expo in Melbourne and Dell was sponsoring it. And, and one of the executives there was like, oh, you need to join this thing. And I was like, great. So then I saw this event was on in Singapore. I um, I stopped on the way home from the UK, spent a few days in Singapore, and I was just blown away. Like the presentations and stuff were great, obviously, but what I was blown away by was like the quality of people in the room, the kind of women who were in the room, um, women who are just doing the most phenomenal things, uh, you know, from all over the world, but particularly falling in with the group of Australians, as you do, you find the Australians somehow randomly and now you're you're with the Australians. Um, you know, there's Narelle Anderson, who's a First Nations woman who's who's running a really significant business in um, in recycling and doing incredible things there. Cathy uh, Reed, who runs you know, this giant billion-dollar valuation, like giant set of pharmacies, like just these women who are, so far ahead of me, like so like million miles ahead of, of my tiny $2 million a year business. Um, and being able to be in rooms with women who've done that stuff, being able to sit down and just have conversations and talk to them, like that's a really rare opportunity. Um, that's not always an easy thing to find people who are playing at that level and multiples of them in a single room. Um, made some really good friends while I was there as well. Some people I've, I've hung out with since who are just really like, like incredible people throughout Australia and New Zealand. Uh, and so after that event, uh, particularly in 2020, I was like, you know what, we really need a chapter. And my understanding at the time, I thought there was a Sydney chapter. My, my understanding was there was a Sydney chapter. So I reached out to Dwen and said, Hey, um, can I start a Melbourne chapter? Because I'd love to get these, this same sort of situation, these incredible women together in a room to have those discussions because it was so valuable to me. Uh, and Twin came back to me and said, no, actually there's no chapter here. Have all of Australia. And I'm like, 
that's not Australia. <laughs> I'm not sure Americans have a full grasp of just how big Australia is. I don't think it, it fully <laughs> plays in their head where it's like, yeah, okay, that's a lot, but sure, why not? Um, so, yeah, so then I took on the, uh, the, the Australian chapter leader role. So what is it that you're hoping to achieve from this relationship that you have with Dwen? Yeah, I, I just, for me, this ability to bring together magnificent people and connect them to one another just makes me so happy. Um, It's really something I enjoy doing a lot. It's actually when I, when I came back from NECA on this last trip this year, um, I, I, there were some postcards in our room and I took the postcards and I like was scribbling on the back on the plane on the way out. What I wanted to make sure I didn't forget. Yeah. Like what I wanted to hold on to the mm-hmm. feelings of things, what I was going to, as, as Jean Owang, who runs um, Virgin Unite says, what are you going to love into being? Uh, and I was like, what am I going to love into being? And I'm like, well, the magnificent women I meet and then ways for them to meet one another. Um, and Dwayne's such a perfect way to be able to accomplish that. Now, just to wrap up, Leela, what do you do to unwind and recharge? We have to know. Oh my God. Um, I am a mad keen crafter. So I am constantly teaching myself how to craft something. I teach myself knitting and I've taught myself embroidery and I've taught myself calligraphy. And I would just like, I've always got something on the go, but it's always something that's very hands-on because my job is so cerebral. Like I'm always thinking about things. It's always, you know, my brain's always a million miles an hour. Um, and so my, my unwinding is always something for whether it's crafting or, you know, we live out in, in the old ways. Um, so hiking, forest bathing, anything that's sort of physical and grounded, I'm such a Taurus, physical and grounded and just really, um, you know, just doing something because so much of my job is just like sitting at a computer, staring at a screen and typing away. That's all we have time for today. Head to leelacosgrove.com to find out more about Leela's work as an entrepreneur, speaker, author and business leader. And head to dwen.com to join the Dell Women's Entrepreneur Network and find out about the Women's Leadership Festival. And thank you for joining us for another episode of First Act. Thanks for having me. And be back next week for another First Act conversation.